Electricast. At Baker's, no matter where you order free pickup, you get the same great deals as you'd get in store. So you can save when you order during band practice or at the dog park or wherever. Start your cart with the Baker's app and save from wherever today. Baker's, fresh for everyone. $35 order minimum. Restrictions may apply. Subject to availability. Get more ways to save at the buy five or more, save $1 each sale. Just buy five or more participating items and save $1 each with card. Baker's, fresh for everyone. Hello, and welcome to the Social Psychic Radio Show, featuring Jason Zook. In uncertain times, we must change our focus and priorities. This show will highlight social justice issues with the goal of expanding minds and increasing unity, love, and mutual respect for ourselves and our planet. We support the Black Lives Matter movement, Our show aspires to promote social spirituality, which simply means that by coming together, we can solve any of our problems, including the goal of bringing an end to all forms of hate, discrimination, bias, or oppression. We must protect our environment, reform our criminal justice system, and protect every citizen from police brutality. When we come together, it becomes possible to bridge the gaps that plague our society and divide us from within. We the people means everyone. Hello and welcome to the Social Psychic Radio Show. This is Jason Zook. It's a great pleasure I have the opportunity of presenting special guest, my mom, Pat Zook, today, to share her experience at the Woodstock Music Festival. This has been a story that I've grown up with since an early age. And I wanted to share this story, this story with our audience because of the fact that my mom was an eyewitness to that festival. And music festivals are a healing modality I could think of as an experience. If you, if you are participating in music, I always consider music to be something that's very soothing and healing for the soul. So I wanted to have this topic shared today because I really think there could be some value in it. And in terms of the history of Woodstock, it was a music festival held August 15th to the 18th of 1969 on Max Yasker's farm, dairy farm in Bethel, New York, which is 40 miles southwest of the town of Woodstock. Built as an Aquarian exposition, three days of peace and music, and alternatively referred to as the Woodstock Rock Festival, it attracted an audience of more than 400,000 people. 32 acts performed outdoors despite sporadic rain. The festival has become widely regarded as a pivotal moment in popular music history as well as a defining event for the counterculture generation of the 1960s. It's a great pleasure. I welcome Pat Zook to the show. Okay. Thank you. I'm glad to be here at last. Uh, (laughs) Welcome to the show. I wanted to, um, I know you're, you are a witness and participant in the Woodstock music festival. And I wanted to see if you could share that experience with our audience because it is a unique situation. It's something I think that I'm very proud of you being there. And I, I'd like to get your perspective shared here. So uh, paint the image for us. I know we grew up in New Jersey, (laughs) outside New York City. Well, nobody there, nobody going there realized how big it was going to be and how momentous and historic. Let's get that straight. We didn't really have concerts at that time in New Jersey. So it wasn't like we were familiar with it. My experience was I didn't find out about it until the night before, which was Friday, and I decided impulsively to go. So a friend and I drove very early in the morning in my brand-new car. We had an idea where to go in New York State because we used to go to the so-called clubs. And we just kept driving on the turf on, on the New York Thruway, and all of a sudden, a massive traffic jam and state troopers, and they're wheeling us and directing us to the side of the road or just in the lanes. Now, I know it was a um, three-day music festival, so what day of the festival was that that you were describing when you, when you basically the, drove up I and went, stuff? Yeah, I went the 15th and 16th. So that's Saturday and Sunday. Right, right. Because Monday, okay. Go ahead. I had a job. <laughs> I was a camp counselor. What is- Okay. So okay. what happened is that massive traffic jam sort of alerted people to what was going on. But again, we were used to summer traffic jams on highways. You know, that was no real big yeah. thing. But to have the state troopers, the New York state troopers, 
make us actually stop in the lanes, get out of the cars, and other cars, they parked them on the side. We had to get out of the car and walk. And once we got to an area where there were, like, the, the big hotels, like in Dirty Dancing, uh, Grossinger's and yeah. places, there were hay trucks there driven by, I guess, um, citizens that lived there in that area actually put groups of us on, a lot of us on a hay truck, and took us up a hill, and that was where the festival was. So, I mean, everything was like, and this was in- wow, what's this? <laughs> This was 1969, which at the time the Vietnam War was raging. There was a, a very well, yeah, that that was another debate, thing. Right? We were yeah, we were against the establishment. We already went through riots, racial riots, and um, we wanted our identity with the colleges, the sit-ins, the LSD. You know, we had gone through that already, but this is like August of 1969, and most of that was done on the West Coast, anyhow. You know, I was from New Jersey. Um, when yeah. we got to the field, we had to walk some far. And it was crossing over, actually stepping over a small fence that they had put around the perimeter. And then standing there, it was a little hill, standing there and looking down, and all you saw was this massive field with all these people. That's all I saw. And as we wow. walked towards the field, they had blankets and stuff. As we walked towards the field, I noticed there were only three porta potties, which is like, huh? And then finding a place to actually put your blanket down, people moved over. They were very nice, not like at the beach at the time. Um, and the music started in the afternoon. It wasn't that morning. It was in the afternoon, I think. Groups I really hadn't been that familiar with. I wasn't really into psychedelic music at that time. And just listening, and you said rain. No, Jay, it wasn't rain. It was torrential downpours. <laughs> so not sporadic. Okay. That's rain not is like sporadic. Or like, yeah. No, 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 no. <laughs> this was a Charlie Brown over his head cloud that just dumped <laughs> on us. Did it the one time. That was on Saturday. And then the sun came out and everything dried. Everything had been mud. Now everything dried and everything was cake mud. And when I say everything, I mean our clothing, our blanket. That's all we took was a blanket. And then your clothing dried and you have no idea today how heavy the real denim bell bottoms became when they were mud or wet. How did you, then the rain, you you'd get used to the sun, and you'd be, you know, performers would be on stage, and then all of a sudden they said they had to stop. There was lightning and another downpour, and this went on all day sa- Saturday. But what we stuck it out. Nobody left. Stuff. What? Yeah. What did you do? What, what did you guys do about bathing and stuff? Uh, well, we didn't bathe until we were allowed to go into a nearby fa- um, pond. And then you just went in with in your clothes pond? on. Yeah, we didn't, okay. people didn't even bring soap or anything. It was only going to be like <laughs> something, you know, something in a park. That's what we thought. You know, put your blanket you down, listen to event? music, and go. We didn't bring food. Oh. We didn't bring water back then. <laughs> and that was another so, thing. Go ahead. I'll say this. when I, I've been to one music festival here in Florida a couple of years ago. It was a very positive experience for me because music is a healing thing, as I said in my intro. And so I know when I went to that, it was like for three days, I tuned out. I didn't have to worry about anything outside of what we were doing at that festival, just talking to each other and being outside nature. You know, it's just listening to music. It was very positive. And I wanted to ask you, like my mindset from that was a bit, it was very positive then for me. And I can't imagine at your beginning of the Woodstock experience. What was your mindset like? Like, what were you thinking? How excited were you? I'm very excited. Never, never imagined anything like this. Never. And then as the years went on to realize that it was part of history and to realize what I was actually involved in. You kids, when the movie came out on TV, every time it came out, you kept looking to see if I was one of those people out of 400,000 to be on TV. Oh. <laughs> in the crowd. You always guys always sat there looking to see if mommy's in that crowd. Because you were a very young age when I started talking about it. 
Yeah. Because uh, I was born in 75, so that's like six years later. Yeah, no, so. you were very young. Very young. Four, five. Your brother would be ten because he's five years older. I talked about it because it was an experience for me. Something I knew would never be repeated in my life, and it wasn't. I never had another thing like that. So how did you first learn about Woodstock, you said, from friends or from, like, a newspaper? or? <laughs> I was Friday night, uh-uh, Friday night, um, I was in a so-called club, which was actually just a, a glorified name for a bar, and one of the guys that came up to ask me to dance said to me, are you going to Woodstock? And I said, what the, what's Woodstock? And he explained it was supposed to be music and the concert with all the bands and everything. And I said, oh, that sounds interesting. And he told me where it was and basically how to get there. And that's when I got my friend and we decided to go. That man happened to become your father. How come I never knew that story in 45 years? I had probably blocked it out. (laughs) So basically, my future father we had no relationship with, who I finally forgave last year, actually, but... He came to you and told you about Woodstock and planted the seeds in the bar. Yes, in the dance, and then he wanted the to know if I was, yeah, if I was going to Woodstock because that's where we used to have dances and stuff. And asked <laughs> me if I was going to Woodstock, and I said I didn't even wow. know what it was. Yeah, that's but a friend of mine so, that I was teaching in the uh, counselor in a camp. Okay, her and I decided we'll go. We, you know, we were ready twenty, almost twenty three and stuff. We weren't kids. So we didn't How, need parental you were, permission, you know. Yeah. And you were teaching at the time, is that right? Or was it the summertime? Yeah, I, I was very settled. Teach. Yes, I was very mainstream at that time. Okay. And okay. this was definitely and a then, hippie psychedelic movement. And then, so how did you actually get into the festival? Was there, you didn't have a ticket, right? No, you just walked over a fence. They okay. only printed up so many tickets for $18 for the three days. I don't remember the number, but the amount of the number of people that were there, the fence was just taken off. It was just a little wood slat thing. It wasn't a big fence or anything. It was just a little slatted thing to give us a perimeter. So you were basically you there for 48 it. hours. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Couldn't, you couldn't leave if you had wanted to. <laughs> remember, the throughway was closed. You had no access getting down the road. Those hay trucks, those people only took us up, I guess, to get us out of their town. So we couldn't leave if we wanted to. We couldn't get any place to sleep because there were no places like a motel or, you know, you couldn't. There was nothing up there. It was a cow pasture on a farm. So how did they take care of all of you guys up there? They didn't. We took, well, there was an area away from the concert, away from the stage and the people where they had tents set up for medical because there were a lot of bad trips that they called them. There were places where parents from across the country came to look for their runaway children. Our security was actually Hell's Angels on their motorcycles going up and down on this one area, not in the concert itself, not in the pasture, but on this road. And I think it was called a hog farm. It was a commune. And they brought in their fruits and vegetables because we had no food. We had no liquids, wow. and we had three porta potties. <laughs> Were you worried at all? I mean, no. I'm one of those people no. I scout out was... in the crowd how many porta potties. I no, need to know. <laughs> no, no, we didn't care. <laughs> None of us really. Well, first of all, there was a lot of drugs. Okay, there was a lot of pot, but everybody was so. I guess the pot in the air made us high that we had no worries. You deal, we didn't care. You dealt energy. with it when you dealt with it. You know, when it came time, then you dealt with it. Well, I was going to say, too, when it came to the festival, I'm sure the energy made you really energized and happy. So you probably didn't think about, oh, we only have three people. No, we didn't have any of those yourself. thoughts. You forgot about your families. You forgot about any of your <laughs> obligations in your real life. Yes. This is not a real life. This festival. is like an out-of-body experience, even at that time. Did you consider it a spiritual experience for yourself? I don't know. What, what do you mean by spiritual? Well, you said out of body. Just, you, you mean, like, yeah, that's how it felt like. It felt like spiritual. I was, yeah, I was the out of body. I was watching this going on. It wasn't me in it. That's, 
that's probably a spiritual thing. You may not always right. call I was it that. watching this going on. Okay, yeah. I was watching this wow. going on, and I was feeling very relaxed. And, you know, the feeling like when you have a dream, I was very relaxed and no problems. Just go with the flow. <laughs> and trust me, there was a lot of flow because those bands were playing for half hours at a time, all different songs. Very short breaks, okay? And I remember some of the, well, Janis Joplin wouldn't go on stage until the woman, the girl who took her pocketbook, returned it because her heroin was in it. Wow. And that was announced on the stage to the audience? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And then the announcer also kept warning, don't take some such and such a pill or LSD cube. It's a bad trip. I saw wow. people that did have bad trips and it were being subdued by. Because I told you, they only had like one or two medics in the tank, in a tent. So it was up to everybody to help everybody else. There were no stabbings. There were no guns. There was no fighting. No violence, huh? No, no. You didn't have to worry. Out of a crowd of 400,000 people. That's, uh, that's unique there right wasn't, there. There I mean, wasn't anything that. like that. Uh-uh. Nope, and you didn't have to worry. Uh-uh. Like, even when you went down the shore in New Jersey, on the beach, you always had to make sure, you know, were the people around you going to be nice? Were they going to be fresh? Were they going to steal from you when you went into the water? We didn't have that. We would just get up from the blanket and walk around. Nobody cared. <laughs> How did I mean, you my, car keys, my car keys were in the car. They made me leave the keys in the car, so money didn't mean anything because you couldn't buy anything. And what about the energy of the crowd, I guess? From listening to all that music from the performers performing, I could feel the energy of that. I could say it's probably oh, amazing, slept. right, for you? Nobody slept. Uh-uh, nobody. It went through all night long. They did not stop, from what I remember. And Performed overnight, too? Yeah, yeah, very late, definitely. Wow. Yeah, and don't forget, I was there for the second night. They had that going on on Friday, too. What? And then on you, Sunday, leaving about 12, 30, right. 1 o'clock in the afternoon, so they had performers. Were you there till the end of the festival itself? Well, we left. Unfortunately, Jimi Hendrix decided that he wasn't going to start the festival. He was going to do his big thing and end it. I remember looking over my shoulder, dragging that wet blanket, and seeing him on stage, and the whole field was a massive amount of junk, paper goods and, you know, all that type of stuff. He had really an audience, so he, like, not many. He played to an empty audience. I can't imagine that, because when you watch him on stage... Yeah, I think when like I looked it up on, on the Internet, it, said it went down from four hundred to um, 80,000 by the time he got on. Okay, so there were people there still, I mean, 80,000. Yeah, but so not like it was. Crowd, not like yeah, it was. for sure. The most exciting thing to me, really was watching on Sunday morning. It must have been very early. We didn't have clocks. We didn't have watches. Nobody cared. Watching the helicopters come in and drop care packages and then some more performers. Governor Rockefeller had declared us a national disa a disaster area, so they had to bring in food and water. But it was already Sunday morning. I think the, the people wow. in the towns around are ones that maybe had... We didn't have bottled water. They had to bring those big canisters and okay. paper cups. And then I know on the way out of the festival, we had to walk past the farmhouse, and the cows had just been milked, and they were giving out the warm milk. And I remember drinking it because you were very thirsty. Remember, it was very hot. I drank all that milk right from the cow. What did you find from your perspective, looking back on it so many years later, that you find was like the greatest influence of that experience to you personally, that you took after the experience and really remember it fondly? Well, and, I realized and, like, and kept through it all those years was the thought that anything that came my way, I could handle it. And to not get all nervous and upset about things, that they would work out. Here I was in this group of people didn't know anybody except one person, and there was no fear. And even the car being parked, the new car being parked on the term, on the throughway, there was no aggravation, no nervousness. And that kept me going through the years because I always said, oh, my goodness. And the only thing is, I cannot stand to be in crowds today. 
that, I mean, even a line in a bank bothers me because there's too many people. Well, and, I, and I, I'm sure that that's all reflective in just different stages of your life when you have different things going on. I, yeah, I, wonder, I could have um, become a, a basket case going through a divorce, going through raising a single parent, raising two sons, <laughs> having to support you, you guys, you putting you together. through college. Yeah, and I, I weathered it. I did it because I kept thinking, you well, look what you went through. Yep. And I, I divided mean, that's, my that's... life. Looking back now, my life is divided into my childhood, my teens, Woodstock, marriage, you know, different parts of my life. That's it was it. different reactions. Yeah. I was asking about Woodstock again, just saying that in re- relation to the, the, the concert itself, and you watched the videos. I know you watched it last year. Does this, does this feel like you, it brings you back to that moment when you were able to watch the Well, those videos, videos that are on, that movies, okay, the movies that you see that was made was more of the background of how it started with the, 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 the promoters and where they wanted to have it and how it started. It really wasn't the concert itself a lot. Because I don't think anybody thought about filming that part. They were more interested in... Yeah, getting publicity for who they were. I don't think they were they were filmed. Nobody. I mean, you know, you didn't film it. There was no cameras or anything. Now, I'm sure people are asked this. I know there were people that bathed in the mud. What was that all about at Woodstock? Cause I remember there was a video. <laughs> I was a little kid. I just want to ask you about that because that was something that I always, you know, was like, okay, well, interesting. Well, we sat down to watch or wait for the music to start. And then maybe 10 minutes later, a torrential downpour came. And we just, like, looked at each other and all these people around you. And no big deal until you realize that you were in grass and mud and all that is getting wet. And you're sitting now on a wet, muddy blanket. And as you get up, I mean, everything was mud. Your clothing was soaking wet and you're walking through, you know, fields and it's muddy. But then it stopped, and you dried, and the whole thing. You didn't think then, we didn't even know where there was water accessible for a pond or anything. That that was off limits. That was by his house. So you just okay. sat there. And what was it like? It was horrible. As soon as I, I had to drive home like that, and I remember <laughs> literally undressing on the side of the house and throwing everything in the garbage and yelling for my mother to give me a robe or something. Wow. Everything was just caked with mud. What Growing up, did you ever think Grandma had intuitive abilities? Yeah, but she didn't want to play up on it either. That was scary for Why her. Why that? From what I understand, she had the feelings, and her mother had the feelings. But they didn't. My grandmother had more. She would talk more about it than my mother was. My mother was just, like, afraid of it. Afraid of anything what that would- wasn't realistic. What was I the remember Sarah calling it the feelings. Yeah. I don't know. She, she, if it was a bad feeling of, of a, a, a thing that might happen that wasn't going to be good, she became very protective of everybody and everything. And if it was a good feeling, she would start, you know, scratching her palm of her hands and saying that she's going to come into money. She never described what she felt and saw. It was just some actions that she would do. That's grandma, or is that great grandma? That was grandma. Great, um, that was our, yeah, your grandmother. My great grandmother would put every, all those feelings down into the old Bible sayings. She was very religious with the old Bible, all, you know, the old Bible, Bible. The Jewish part. And she would always have different in background. things. Yeah, she would have different things that were her, you know, what she was feeling or, or was going to happen. It was all there in that Bible part. I understand that. And what so just so we have background here, because that side of the family, your side of the family was from Russia, grandpa's side, and then actually Ukrainian, right? And then grandma on your mom's side, on your side, your mom's side was Czech. So we had right. Slavish and Russian in that. Hungarian, background. Czech, so, yeah. They were from the middle European. Yeah, yeah. So that's how probably, because I always grew up knowing, I used to tell you guys, when I was a little kid, I felt like deja vu. I would get things ahead of time, and Grandma told me not to talk about it. She right, said that right. she didn't call feelings. She told me not to talk about it, so I had to repress it that exactly. way. So did you have experiences like that yourself, 
Or did you just oh, yeah. not pay I was, attention I to it? I learned at an early age not to fight with her about anything and not to tell her anymore if I had a feeling. My aunts understood, her sisters. Really? But they didn't, so? uh, they didn't say they had any feelings, uh, you know, any recollections or, you know, visions or anything. or whatever. But they encouraged me. I could get... tell them at a young age. Well, you know, I knew something was up when I was in college. I don't know if you remember this, but I'm going to ask you about this because it's interesting to me. I went to UT, as you know, and I came back my freshman year in the summer, and I was 18, and I was obsessed with wanting to have a fake ID. And so I went into the city with a couple of friends, and you, before I left that night, you told me, New York City, we lived right outside it, you told me right before I left, you're like, don't go to the city tonight, don't get a fake ID. Don't waste your $50. You were at a nap, and you walk, I walked out, and you said that to me. And I said yep. that to my friends, like, oh, don't worry about it, your mom doesn't know what she's talking about. We went into the city. I went in, not knowing what I was doing. I got deer in headlights with my two friends, walked into a deli. This guy told me to give the guy behind the register the $50 bill and that they would take me around the corner and give me an ID. And I went around the corner and nothing was left. And so when I got home that <laughs> night, you were waiting up. And you knew, you knew, how did you know that? <laughs> I just had the feeling. I had, a, I guess, a vision of, it wasn't a vision. It wasn't people walking or anything. It was just a strong feeling that, yes, this is going to be. Yes, this is real. Wow. But I really you didn't talk about life. it. Oh, I just had a premonition. I didn't even use the word premonition or deja vu. Yeah. And I didn't so it runs in the family tell too. you exactly. Was, I didn't say, oh, you can't do that because I know it's not going to work out. No, I just would warn you, and that was it. That's interesting. And then how did you get involved in psychic fairs when I was a little kid? Because I remember going to psychic fairs as a little kid. Yeah, I don't know. They were advertised in the paper. They were in the hotels in New Jersey on Sundays. And it was called a psychic fair, and that's exactly what it was. It was one room, and there were all these people sitting at different tables, and you decided, did you want astrology? Did you want tarot? I always went for the tarot cards. I have no idea what put me in there, what made me God was bored. <laughs> okay. And then I what started is, going at least once every, what, four months, five months. Grandma went to a psychic when she was younger and during World War II. What did that psychic say to Grandma? No, she I didn't she was go nervous to the psychic. Yeah, she went to the psychic, and she was living in a rooming house with other wives of uh, servicemen. She was working at the Pentagon. And they were very close, okay, all the people, all the women. It was only women. And one of the women told her, come with her to a fortune teller, they called them. Okay, so she went, yeah, fortune teller. So she went, and this woman did the first, you know, the friend, and you know everything was fine. And then she came to grandma, and she said, "Am I?" Of course, the first thing out of grandma's mouth is, "Is my husband coming home?" Because he was in Europe. And the woman said, "Oh yes, he's coming home, but there's somebody very close to you and him that the husband will be killed." Oh. And then a couple of days later at the rooming house, one of the women did get a telegram. And oh. Grandma decided yeah, right then and there she didn't want to know about the future. Oh, wow. But she had that those premonitions because I, I remember her telling me about it privately later in life that she had the gift or whatever yeah, it was. Yeah, but she, she, she was afraid of them. She wanted to deny she had them because of that bad experience. Yeah. Yeah, so she would just—I told you she would just have little habits that she did of, of you know, don't do this and and um, oh, good things are going to happen. But she never would say, you know, oh, I want to go to the racetrack. She didn't tell me why because we lived right up the hill from the Meadowlands, the horse <laughs> racing. She didn't say why, but we went and she won, and <laughs> it was like a lot of money she won. And when I asked her, she said, well, my palm was itchy, because that was an old folk thing. You know, if your palm is itchy, you're going to come into money. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. That's very interesting. And I know from mm -hmm. our vantage point, for, for you, when you look at things back now at this point in your life, looking back, reflecting on like the Woodstock era for you, tying it all together, what do you think right now? If there's someone in our audience who's listening to this, and let's say they're in their, they're young, they're 20s, right? They're listening to this and they heard about Woodstock from their parents or maybe grandparents at this stage. I don't know. What would you say to them about the festival that you find? That it could never would... be repeated. Yeah. That and was what was the most momentous part about it for you? Yeah. The whole experience. The whole experience of all those people like me and younger ones. 
that were all there and nothing bad ever happened. When we were afraid oh, to walk even that, at that time, walk down the street, you know, in New York City was crime ridden. I mean, we had a lot of crime and yeah. that did make you afraid. But to think back now, I mean, all those people were there and nothing ever happened. Nothing bad ever happened. There were no rapes. There was no beatings. There was no sex. Nothing. And that would have been announced yeah. from the stage because I told you they would have the police for the runaways. They would have Janice Joplin losing her drugs, that type of stuff. <laughs> You know, but they, wow. um, yeah, but no, there was nothing, who, nothing bad. Who was your favorite artist from the concert? I think the one Sly and the Family Stone don't want to get you higher or I want to get higher. Because okay. I remember it was nighttime. Well, they had, they, they draw, they were dressed first of all. You could, I wasn't that far from the stage, so I saw everything. They dressed wow. in these very, uh, glittery, costumes with the fringes that was the style and the bell bottoms and when they sang that song it was nighttime we didn't have those cameras that you can you know flash on or anything we'd even do the lighter you know to show participation <laughs> but when they sang that song basically everybody jumped up and yelled higher higher <laughs> and that was like for the whole song we kept doing that and that was i'm getting chills now because that was sort of the Participation we I gave. I got goosebumps too. But... Yeah, yeah, that's great. Because it was that's really great. amazing that we all just, you know, automatically did it, you know, just jumped up and said that. You know, Do we you didn't have a wave. Have we, be... we weren't doing waves or anything back then. That's true. And huh. the floodlights were really, the only part that was really lit up was the stage. So we were basically, at nighttime, we were in the dark. Were there bugs, like mosquitoes and stuff? No, I think they were afraid to be there and they probably got all high. <laughs> the mosquitoes? I'm telling you, I do not remember or coming home with any mosquito bites or anything like that. And you would think with all that water? Uh-uh. And all those people, because I remember growing up in the Northeast, there was always mosquitoes in the summertime. So how did that not nope. happen? Nope. I don't remember anything like that. Which is good because we had wow. no medicine to help stop the itch. And during the exactly, day, I don't remember any could... bees or wasps. Wow. I remember about, seeing in the field where the helicopters were landing later, it was still a, a grass pasture. Like, I remember seeing some butterflies, which is weird now that I think about it. Now, was there media there? Like, were people trying to cover this at the time? Like, they would nowadays? Was there? No, uh, not until anybody? it got really big. Uh-uh, uh-uh. They couldn't get in, Jason. Okay. If they weren't there, like, Thursday as part of the, the setup, they couldn't get in. It wasn't accessible. Were you a full-fledged hippie, though? Because, I mean, living I was, in New Jersey... what they call the weekend. No, pastor. weekend hippie. Uh-uh, weekend. I was a teacher. <laughs> I was a straight-laced person during the week. Okay. But then not <laughs> during even the during week, the... So. During the week. But on weekends, then I became the hippie with the bandana on my head and the low hip-hugger, hip-huggers and the platform shoes. Yeah. What do you... What do you think about music? I want to ask you about this because I never really had a chance to talk to you about this. But for music, for well, me, it's something I always very important. Like I think you did too. It sounds like from going to the festival and always having music as an important. I was with you yesterday. We we're listening to music together from Woodstock. I was just going to so, bring that out and look at all the different kinds of music I played for you yesterday. That's what I was growing I up. I know. With. I had a. I know. I loved it. You even got me to hear a song that Grandma used to listen to during World War II for Grandpa. Like now I know I'll that's a song you. that Grandma. Yeah, would I'll be seeing you. Yeah. yeah. And my Cliffs of Dover. Yeah, that it was an integral part, and Good it was point. all music. Yeah. There was only like one or two shows. Well, now I want to ask you this because you did teach in Patterson, and I I really inner have respect for you that you did that. You were an inner city school teacher, and you taught neurologically impaired students, ages what to what. Oh, ages, well, I I had usually, I taught them from 9 to 13 when they graduated 8th grade. Yeah, I had them a lot of years, the same children. I only had 9 to 12 kids in a classroom plus a teacher's assistant. Yeah, Cassie, they were she was really needs. amazing work. They were you. special needs. They, they, were, they were very slow learners, most of them. Some of them were slow learners because they had eaten lead when they were children in their apartments because Patterson was, you know, really run down. Um, yeah, they had a, a multitude. They had more emotional problems probably than they did academic, but it was never diagnosed or treated as well the, the best way. 
And for you, I know Patterson is a very important part of our lives because once you start teaching at Patterson, our lives became more stable financially and you very had your stable. professional life back as a, back as a teacher. Right. Until then, I had to work to in an office because there were no teaching jobs. Yeah. But when so I started working that, in Patterson, yeah, that was a stability. It was fun, though. I, I never referred to it as going to work. It was always going to school. I was going to school. When you say going to school, I want you to describe the facilities that you taught under. Because you tell me stories, and at the time I was a teenager, so I didn't really appreciate the the gravity of it. Now at this stage of my life, I can't. And we're in New Jersey, which, you know, New Jersey has per capita higher income capabilities living outside the city. And then you have a city like Patterson where the resources are not equal. And things are not adequately budgeted, and you have corruption. I wanted to, I mean, what are the facilities Same that you've there for 27 years? Well, when I started in Patterson, and I would come home and tell you boys, Jamie was already 16, and I would start telling you stories about the buildings, about what I was seeing. You, you just, it went over your heads. You, you just had no frame of reference for it. Jamie came home one day when he was already a coach for the high school in Lodi for football, and he came home to tell me that, the bus driver got lost on the way back from one of the games, away games, and they had to drive through the areas of Patterson. And he came home and he said, now I know what you're talking about. Because some of those neighborhoods were really bad. And this is where a lot of our kids, my kids were not walking to school except for the Alabama projects. They were bused in from all different neighborhoods because they were special needs. When you say special needs, can you explain that a little to our audience? Because I don't think they really know what that means. Well, they were slower than the other kids in picking up reading skills, math skills, social skills. I had a, a little boy, that two children, that actually had cerebral palsy. So even physical skills, they couldn't keep up with their own age level or grade, and therefore they were put into so-called special classes. And then later on, when the new reform started, they were now put into resource, what we call resource rooms, and not necessarily self-contained classes to be isolated. They were now sitting in with their regular classmates for coming down to me, let's say for extra help, which could be their whole math and their whole language, their whole English classes. I had them the whole morning but they were still part of their classes. They would leave me and go back to their classes, to their gym classes, their music classes, and the regular sitting for history and things like that. But in the beginning when I started, you know, no, they were all self-contained. They were isolated. And when you say self-contained, so you kept them in a room with you all day, every day? Yeah, and then we had, um, they had separate, well, okay, they would have a separate class for gym, where the gym teacher would take two or three of the self-contained classes together. They had music classes the same way or an art class the same way. They were not integrated into the regular school population. I want to know, when you taught, I mean, obviously you got connected to your students, and it's hard not to be personally emotionally connected with, you know, the students you interact with daily and you get to know them, like, How did you cope seeing the hardships that your students would go through just by living in Patterson and dealing with the things that were endemic there, like the challenges financially and emotionally? I want to see, can you describe the kind of stuff you you witnessed that was like... Well, the kids that I had were, yeah, I would discover that, you know, they were being physically abused. One boy was being beaten with a coat hanger. Another one came in with the print on his cheek from a, a sneaker, you know, the back of a sneaker. Another one came in with burns on all over the body. Another girl was burned with an iron. But these things, don't forget, I had the teacher assistant. So even though in my own frame of reference, my own lifetime, I didn't see this, now I did. And it would be reported. And at first we had to report it to the nurse, and then that was the law, the nurse and then the principal, and it was up to him. Then they changed the law and said, no, a teacher can call automatically what we call DIFUS. Division of Youth and Family Services, and get immediate help for that child. You didn't have to go through channels that, you know, delayed anything. They could be removed from the home very quickly. 
But I wasn't the only teacher that was compassionate and stuff. Many of us were. Most of, I, I would say all of us teaching in Patterson. You, you weren't, you knew going in there that it was not going to be just, uh, top students. When those charter schools started, they started taking all the good top students out of the schools and putting them into charter schools. Which meant what? We and were left with kids that really needed all the extra help. That was why you were teaching there? Oh charter yeah, we trained. went through a lot of changes. When I was teaching there, we also were taken under state, um, control because there was so much graft. We didn't have our own local people in power anymore with the Board of Ed or hiring or even the superintendent. They were all brought in by the state from other states and stuff. There was one right superintendent uh, for a short time came from Tampa. I forgot his name, but... Wow. Yeah. And they were not... That meant we were upset about that because that meant that they were not familiar coming in to what the challenges were. But the state dumped a lot of money into the curriculums. A lot of uh, supplies were given to us, whereas before, teachers basically had to spend their own money. I remember you doing that, putting together bulletin boards and all that. uh Uh-huh. And I... My kids used to come on a bus, and they would be waiting for the bus at 7.30, but because the bus dropped off kids at different schools, they may not get to me until 9. A lot of them had not eaten breakfast. We didn't have free breakfast at that time. That came in later. So my assistant and I decided to start bringing in um, dry cereal, and the cafeteria gave us the milk, the little things of milk, and we made placemats, and I bought the clear contact because we didn't have a machine to laminate. And they made their own little placemats, and we would have breakfast. We would have the dry cereal. Um, parents that found out about this started sending in cereal and things for them to eat as a group for breakfast. And then, thank God, That's the federal great. government came in with breakfast. Yeah. Now And then when, by the yeah. time I left, they were even giving them meals to take home on weekends, and they had started giving them meals at night for nighttime because our kids were hungry. What did you think once you taught in Patterson a while? Like, did you feel like you got used to it? Is there ever a way? No, you don't get used, used to, to it. Every day was a new thing. Every single day, okay. something else. One day I was teaching in a school that the school was really nice condition, considering in a nice neighborhood. A lot of wealthy people used to, the mayor, and he became a senator, lived across the street from this school. But a couple of blocks down was a project called the Alabama Projects. And one day, a lot of these kids just kept running into our school at all morning times. I'm really overflowing, okay? Kids that weren't even supposed to be in our school came to our school. They were doing a sweep. They called it a sweep with the Patterson Police for Drugs. And a lot of their parents were oh. being taken out in handcuffs. Oh, my God. So these kids didn't know. I mean, even your younger kids, what were they going to do at the end of the day? We can give them shelter, but what was going to happen at 3 o'clock? That's what I mean. What happened at 3 o'clock? Well, the principals had to get together, and they had to make, uh, they asked for some volunteers, you know, teachers to stay in the building until they could arrange for something to be done, find out what parents were still there, and if other people can take the kids in, and that type of thing. Yeah, it was hard. It was hard. Some of them had to wind up in, you know, like the shelters for the night or so. But I'll never forget the fear on those little kids especially and physically running into the school. Now, when do you ever see kids running into a school? The thing is that they saw their parents being taken away. I mean, it was like the first time these young ones especially were involved in it. Yeah. And it wasn't just gangs because the gangs hung out in the project. It wasn't just being afraid of the gangs and seeing them. Everybody was being investigated into their apartment, and if they found drugs or something like that, they were taken away. That was like, you know, clean up. You had a lot of of things that happened there. What was one of the best positive experiences you take back from teaching in Patterson for yourself? Oh, well, I had children that came to visit me after they, when they got into high school and showed me how well they were doing. And some of them even went to the colleges. 
you know, and some kept, I kept in contact with one little girl from the time she was nine, and I'm still in contact with her, and she, I was at her wedding, <laughs> I went to her family functions, and, um, is that, see, now, we're in contact Shaquita? even now. She has two kids. Yeah, you're and, about Shaquita, right? Yeah, yeah Shaquita. That's great. Yep, yeah, so I'm still awesome. in contact. But it was always a good feeling, and when I was retiring, and the word got out, because I wasn't making a big fuss about retiring, I just, I just wanted to get out. Um, how many of my students You're coming to Florida. that I used to have knew about me and they would come and some of them would be only like 18 or 17 or 16 and, but they wanted to come and say goodbye to me you know it was really great like, was, did you feel like when you left that it was just like closing a chapter of your life that you're done oh yeah that like was one chapter like that. that closed oh yeah one chapter that closed and I was coming to Florida and I was retired and that was it, no revisiting the past. I'm surprised I got you to talk about it. No, not Normally. revisiting that, but after a year I got <laughs> bored of being retired, and that's when I started volunteering in a school. And I volunteered. They got an unpaid teacher. I had a wonderful teacher that was in the room, and I was supposed to be a volunteer to help with the kids, but I was there from 7 in the morning till the end of the day, five days a week. And that I worked with the children here for Florida. three years. Uh, no, Wilmoma. Uh, Wilmoma, that's right, that's right. Wilmoma. And you were there Basically, how many the school population was um, Mexican, Hispanic, because there were a lot of farms around there. Yes. And the children needed the extra attention. The class is very big. They needed that extra attention in groups of maybe five or six. And they needed my, my skills of being a special needs teacher, of knowing how to approach these children that had learning problems, which could be temporary only. Yeah, so I enjoyed it very much, and I know they enjoyed it. And the teacher still keeps in contact with me, too, so she enjoyed me. <laughs> I mean, our whole family's educators. Jamie's an educator. His wife's an educator. You were an educator. I'm the oddball lawyer guy, but I feel but like you everyone were always in there for higher education. You went beyond law school. True. One year, it was. I feel like looking at, at Georgetown. What, you know, don't deny that. Yeah. True. True. That was a good experience. Yeah, we were the educate. And my my mother, your grandmother, didn't graduate high school, but your grandfather did, and he was all for education. I have his diploma. He wanted me. Keep it friends I in my room. I was the first one in our family to go and graduate college. Back then, a lot of us were the first. Baby boomers were the first ones to graduate college in their families. And we would set wow. examples for the rest to come up. That was a, a, a thing with us. That was the pressure that was put since, on us. Go to college and graduate. Since you brought up Grandpa, I have to ask you, because I, I, we always talk about it privately, how Grandpa comes through to you and I. How, how often do you feel like you feel Grandpa's with you? All the time. And when I'm outside <laughs> walking and I may be thinking to myself about something and I'll look down on the pavement and I see coins and I pick them up yes. and I always say, all right, Daddy, I know you're thinking of me. And it makes it and easier to make a decision. Well, Grandpa does that with me with everything. He did it with my office space, making decisions about where to move. He did it with me before Irma was going through Florida. I knew we were going to be all right when we evacuated. And he also even did it during the pandemic. And he's done it ever since. When I had my house fire a couple of weeks ago. For my AC unit, I went outside, went in the car and got food and found a rainbow. He told me, look left, and there was a rainbow. I took pictures of it, put it on my social media. Like, that's a real relationship. And oh, yeah, Grandpa was very, <laughs> and yeah, very special to us. He, he took an interest in, in us. You know, I mean, he you know, considered himself and, more. I mean, you were only six months old when I brought you home getting a divorce. He considered you his son. You were a baby, yeah. six months old. My brother was already 17. So yeah. he enjoyed having you around and Jamie because you were the young ones and he liked kids. Well, let me ask you this because I, I never got a chance to talk about this on my show, but as a baby, I had some kind of medical situation. Can you explain that to the audience? Uh, you were born, we later found out after testing, you were born with a lack of natural immunity. Usually a newborn is given the immunity for a couple of months from the mother. I apparently did not pass anything on to you. So from the day one that you were born, you had respiratory problems. And it was really bad. And by the time you were six months old, I think it was, is when you started getting pneumonia. 
and bronchitis. First would be bronchitis and then pneumonia. And you were in the hospital with pneumonia six times until you were two years old. Always in your left lung. That that does not sound like fun for you to be a parent of me. <laughs> no, because I – and what about your brother? I had to give up things for him to be at a hospital with you. But thank goodness I had grandma and grandpa to fill in, but it still wasn't me. His kindergarten graduation, you were sick. I had to be wow. with you. And the pneumonia nine times, I don't, or six times, you said. I always thought it was nine. Well, I made arrangements, yes. We made my doctor, the pediatricians at that time, did some research and found out that Children's Hospital up in Boston would be the best, best place to send me with you for testing because they had the bubble for babies and children that were supposed to keep them germ-free. And they did the test. Because you had like three or four sweat tests done for cystic fibrosis wow. every time they kept it. Yeah. I mean, that was scary, not knowing if you were going to survive. But when I got to the Boston, they did the test, and they found out that you had a certain thing that you needed in your blood at that point. And the possible cure was to take you every week and get an injection in each buttock of this medicine, which was like a serum of being pumped into you. And you were already two wow. and a half. So you you knew we were going to the doctor and you knew when your pants came off, something was happening. It finally kicked in. But one Christmas wow. we spent here in Florida, in Fort Lauderdale, in the hospital. They had emptied out the children's ward. They were so happy. And then we came in the day before Christmas Eve and we had to stay. And that was because I got Christmas sick? In. Yep. Well, that was an, what about another example. Didn't the doctor write for you to stay in the hospital to take rest because they felt well, concerned? Well, yeah, I had called him, and I said that you were coughing really bad. I mean, one time you turned blue on me. Um, you were coughing very bad and a lot of phlegm, and he said to bring you down, of course. So I brought you down, and he said, well, he has to go in the hospital. I said, oh, my goodness, he's sick again? He says, no, you look really bad. You need a rest. <laughs> and then so they took he me? said, he's going to wind up in the hospital in a day or two but I'm putting him earlier and sending you home wow. so you can get the rest. Was that yeah, when we stayed by Aunt Margie? That we were in Florida. That's before in, in I Jupiter? took it to Children's Hospital. That's before I took it to Children's Hospital in Boston. And that's how you diagnosed it was from the Children's Hospital in Boston? They figured it yes. out? And they took me on a tour He's... before that when we were waiting for the results of how you could live in a bubble and what my responsibilities what? would be. How would I live but in then, a bubble? thank goodness it I wasn't. Stay? I don't know. I didn't go that far. <laughs> <laughs> I guess bring you home. You know, years ago, there was a movie with John Travolta when he was young about the boy in the bubble and how he had to live in this <laughs> bubble. It was a clear, see-through tent around, you know, the oh. round kind. No, thank you. Thank God things worked out the way they did. Because you had no, and kids are still born with that, still born without immunity. You know, they, they have a very compromised immune system. You'll see advertisements when they're doing for St. Jude's and they're talking about children that are compromised. Now with the COVID, children that have compromised, medically compromised, you know, there's still a lot of them yeah. without cures for them. Horrible. Your disease didn't show up until you were two years old. Every test we took, you were negative, but you was were negative. sick. Yeah. All those tests we kept doing was not showing what the cause was. It showed you had bronchitis. It showed you had this. It showed, But it didn't tell the doctors what was causing all that until you were two, two and a half. And Did then, that delay me in other ways? Oh, my goodness, you didn't want to talk because we spoiled you when you got healthy. You just pointed. (laughs) Every time you came out of a hospital, we had to reteach you a development skill, like how to get down in the playpen, how to not be afraid to plop your rear end and let go, how to crawl, how to hang on to a chair, you know, crawl over to a chair. You wouldn't talk. You would just point because we would give it to you. We felt so bad that you were always sick. When did I start talking? When I After when I, I found out that you were getting very healthy and I got a, a, a long-term uh, teaching job in the hometown and I put you into nursery school. 
And nope. nursery school actually toilet trained you and took away the bottle in like two weeks. I had and a good connection with her as a little kid. Yeah, yeah. you started okay. talking a lot and we couldn't shut you up. And you found <laughs> out you had a talent on the piano. That's because of my father, right? I mean, didn't he have yep. a musical and your talent? your brother also. Yeah, it's supposed to be genetic, isn't it? Yeah, but I didn't develop it very much. <laughs> and he didn't want to do but, it either. Yeah. But you had a, a real wow. um, talent on her piano. She would play a song once, and then you would go on a break time, like, and over. And you were only, like, three. Go toddling over and then start, sit down and start Grandma? playing tunes. No, the, the teacher in the school. We didn't have a piano. Oh, Nellie. She would be okay. playing songs in the morning. I'm singing and stuff, okay? Maybe lunchtime. You had some free time. It was only one big room. And you would walk, you know, eat your lunch or whatever and walk over to the piano. Nobody was there but you. And you'd start playing and almost repeating exactly what she had played in the morning. Isn't that what my father did, too? He had that musical ear Your thing father did not know how to read music, but he learned it by ear. It's probably what I can do. I just never developed mm-hmm. it. I should have. It's probably yep. a good hobby to develop. But. Well, I don't have that talent at all. But, um, yeah, he could read, couldn't read it, but he could play any song by ear. He heard it maybe once or twice. And he had a, a big organ, he didn't, um, a B3 organ, Hammond organ. He didn't play piano. I wanted to ask you this, Mom, because of stuff that's been going on in society. When Jamie and I were younger, how did you get us involved in sports? Well, there wasn't any other outlets that I could think of to keep you boys busy. You were young, and I was working in offices until 5 o'clock. And... Grandma would be there because she wasn't working. But the fact is, I had nothing, you had nothing to do after 5 o'clock. Okay? I mean, she would feed you dinner and you had to get your house, your homework done before 5 o'clock. But after 5 o'clock, there was nothing. And we didn't even have video games. And there was really nothing good on TV for you kids. Somebody, I think I went to the library and I saw the flyer for the, you know, the Lodi rec teams and stuff, and I just signed you guys up. You had to go into soccer because you were young. Not too young. Too young for the football. He went into the junior Rams, the young group. That's and right. then you That's would right. graduate to the next level. You left soccer and went into the junior Rams the next year. And that yeah. changed everything in our life, in our, our lives because not only did you have uh, was sports okay five days a week were practice starting in the summer and then weekends were games he played on saturday at the high school you played on sundays with the the other team yeah and it was or he was playing the senior team and you were playing the junior team so i would be on the field from early morning till late in the afternoon seven days how a did week. you do that i don't know <laughs> I don't know how I did it, but I did it. When you guys had practice at the field in town, I could not leave you. I would not leave you in case something happened. So, therefore, instead of sitting on the bleachers, I volunteered into the snack thing they had, the snack, like a building. Snack stand, yeah. Yeah, and that's what I I volunteered for that five nights a week until practice was over, I think, at 9. You know what? 5 to 9, that's what I did. There's that little plaque you had when I was a little kid. Do you remember it? Over the stove? Well, I always looked at it. You, you don't remember that little plate you thing had over the stove when we were in the basement apartment with Grandma and Grandpa? What did it say? Super Mom Works Here. Yeah, that was me. That was the phrase back then. We were I Super mean, Moms. We did everything. Though. I mean, you did everything. Think about it. Think about well, you see, you back in the 60s I, when we did that women's lib, that also made we, made us have to go to work. We wanted equals to be I men, equals to men. We had to go out and work, too, regardless if you had family. And divorce yeah. was really uh, huge numbers in the 70s, like us. And as single parents, you had to work. I mean, you were super so, uh, mom, though, even before we had football, when we were, like, when I was seven and Jamie was older. But then we also did Parents Without Partners that you put us through as little, little kids. And I became on the board of directors rather than just being a participant. And as board of directors, I was in charge of, Parents of younger children, because they were younger divorced, and I would 
be on the board of directors for the chapter and arrange for all the trips that we would take weekend trips or meet for dinner at a certain restaurant during the week. We would go to Madison Square Garden. Then we would really go camping all summer every week, and I had to find the campgrounds and the best price. And, yeah, I was very active. And then I, they put me on the um, vice, pre- vice president of the regional. And did yeah. you go to no, Canada No, the captain sent me to Canada. Canada and yeah. Dallas, Texas. Yeah. Yeah. Dallas. No, I always remember that plaque because that like you got us through all these upheavals in life that we had to struggle as a family. Even though we had grandma and grandpa that helped us out when they could, there were a lot of times they didn't. And I know you're a super mom because look what you've accomplished in our lives for all of us. Well, so, later I on, you, after you know. I stopped being super mom, if you remember, I had the, the saying, um, everything happens. There is a light at the end of the tunnel. I'm looking at it right now. It's a little cut I, out. I, cut that. I, was, I used to go to Trump Plaza or Trump uh, Marina, gamble, and they used letter, and that was on <laughs> one of the pages, and I kept it, and that was in the 80s and 90s, and I just kept it here. I brought it with me here, and I just gave yeah. it to you, right at the end of the tunnel. Well, because, and I have it. I'm looking at it right now while we're talking, and that's something that's also like prophetic in my mind, that there's always a light at the end of the tunnel. It's never a train. It's always that. Especially better. now, <laughs> especially now during these days, yeah. definitely we'll see the light. No more trains. But positive thing. You know, hopefully it's not a train <laughs> coming at us, the light, but yes, yeah, yeah. there's a light at not the at end all. of the tunnel. Mom, I want to thank you for, uh, I never thought I'd say those words. Mom, I want to thank you for coming on my show, but I want to thank you for sharing your information about Woodstock today, your experiences as an inner city school teacher in Patterson, New Jersey, and background on me and background on the family stuff. And thank you. So I appreciate hey, you it. You know what? <laughs> we had to, I have to mention this about grandpa being with me. When you were before you were diagnosed with cancer, I had a premonition something bad was going to happen. Didn't know what. Then when you okay. were diagnosed, of course, I fell to pieces. And I remember dreaming. Grandpa came to me in my dream and assured me that I, it would be okay. Because at that time well, when you were diagnosed, before treatment, all I kept doing, I lived alone. All I kept doing was from room to room crying, it's not supposed to be this way. I have to go first, blah, blah, blah. I was very negative. And he came to me and reassured me it would be fine. How about the fact that I was under anesthesia for my colonoscopy after I had the cancer procedure in 2018? I had the cancer removed on September 26, 2018, and I had to go in for my diverticulitis surgery to get that removed in December. So they had the colonoscopy. So I went for the appointment. I went under an anesthesia, and Grandpa came to me in the garden with Grandma and other relatives. And I felt this unconditional wave of love, like the first time I met him in 2004, the night he died, when you called me that night when I was in Wisconsin. And he said to me, and I'm going to repeat this to you because you were a part of this, but he said to me during that experience when I was under the anesthesia, he said, let your mom know that you're not going to die before her. She's going to die her natural course of life, and you're going to be okay. <laughs> and I woke up, and I remember Megan picked me up, to bring me home, and I remember I called you in the car and I told you about that, and you started crying instantly. Do you remember that? Yeah. And do you remember well, why you cried? Grandpa instantly? came Those to me. Those were the exact words. Those were the exact words that you you prayed to Grandpa all the time. And and then how about now powerful. when I, I how about now when I tell you I had a dream and Grandma came to me, and what does that mean? Because Grandma yeah. and I did not have a great relationship, and you said, <laughs> yeah. "Well, she's." reaching out to you, you know, like she wants to make amends and stuff. And same thing with your father. You know, we did not have a good relationship. A couple of times he came to me in a dream and that you said the same thing. I forgave him. I forgave Well, what did him. I, I tell you? I didn't. I did not forgive <laughs> them for either one of them. Even though my father well, tells me, you know, he always said, you know, don't hold, you know, don't hold malice, don't, you know. No, he always had little don't bits of wisdom you. that we, we live by. He was good that way. You know, don't yeah, you never lend money to people. You give it to them because you'll never yeah. expect it back. And when True. you think about it, yeah, if you're going to lend somebody in your family money, give it to them. Don't, don't lend it because they're not going to pay you back. And then you'll have bad feelings. <laughs> it's true. But if you give it's it, true. it's a gift. You know, oh, I need 300 exactly. Okay, I'll give you the 300 Here it is. Oh, I'll pay you back. No, 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 you don't have to. Grandpa was like that. You're right. I want to thank you, Mom. Thank you for calling me. Well, thank you for giving me this opportunity. (laughs) There'll be more. 
I, I can acknowledge okay. that because I enjoyed having you on today, and I love you very much, Mom. <laughs> I love you too, hon. <laughs> All right, thanks. <laughs> Bye-bye. I want to thank my mom for coming on the show today. I never thought I'd say those words, but it makes it fun to have the ability to interview your mom about things that she's always talked about. And Woodstock's a very pivotal part of my mom's life because she was part of something bigger than herself. And she got to see firsthand what the benefits of that could be. And I believe it shaped her as a person. Coming from a single-parent family, it's not always something I talk about. We had a lot of challenges growing up, financial challenges. I always felt like I didn't fit in as a little kid because everybody else's family had two parents. But my mom made up for it. And she made up for it by getting my brother and I involved in sports and, and mentoring us and, you know, having us focus on our education. And she was an educator and she worked in an inner city school. And I feel like everything that she experienced shaped who she is in such a way. You can't find a more generous soul. Someone who doesn't talk about themselves. I had to like beg her to come on the show today. I had to ask her like five times. And even after I asked her five times, I had to like come up with questions and prepare her for this because it was something that my mom's never really been aware of what podcasting's like. So it was fun to have her on today. My brother's been on before. And now to have my mom on, it's a a meaningful thing for me because we never know how much longer we're here. We never know where future leads. And that was on my bucket list is I want to have my mom on the show to talk about Woodstock because she has so much insight about it as a topic. And I'm fascinated by it. So I hope you could be fascinated by it as well. I shared a little personal information there with this interview, but at some point you got to do that. (laughs) So thank you so much for tuning into this episode. Thank you to my mom, Pat Zook, for coming on the show, anticipating and stay positive because when you're positive, anything's possible. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Social Psychic Radio Show. Don't forget to join us for another episode next time. If you enjoyed the show, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give us a review on iTunes. You can also check us out on Facebook, and don't forget to visit the Social Psychic YouTube channel. Until next time, it's a big world out there. Keep an open mind. Embrace your paradigms and know that the universe is always yours to explore. With the Baker's Plus card, it's easy to get lower than low prices for the win. Earn fuel points on every purchase and save up to a dollar a gallon at the pump. The Baker's Plus card. All you do is win. Big, big savings. Sign up now at bakersplus.com and start saving. Baker's. Fresh for everyone. Savings may vary by state. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your favorites with the buy five or more, save a dollar each sale. Simply buy five or more participating items and save a dollar each with your card. Bakers, fresh for everyone. Hey there, I'm DC. I host the Rock Podcast. Back to the arena, the interviews. It's about a 30-minute podcast where I talk one-on-one with a band who has released new music. You can find us on all the best podcast sites like Spotify, Apple, Google, iHeartRadio, and more. If you're a rock fan like me, subscribe today to Back to the Arena, the interview. Electric Acid. Electric Acid. Welcome to the Candle Power Hour. Come with us backstage behind the scenes of show business spanning over four decades and bringing you the experiences that can only be told by the people who were there. Our guests are from the A-list, the F-list, and everyone in between. Get set for some of the most insane, hilarious, and inspiring stories you will ever hear. I'm Mercury. And I'm Diego. Your host for The The Candle Candle Power Power Hour. Electric acid.